Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our podcast, Conversations with B'nai B'rith, a show for all things Jewish history and culture, Israel, and issues important to the Jewish community. I'm CEO Dan Mariashi. If you enjoy this program, subscribe to Conversations with B'nai B'rith wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and like us on Facebook for all of our latest content. Well, if you've ever wondered what it would be like to work with and learn from rock legends like Roger Daltrey, Gene Simmons, Steven Tyler, Bill Wyman, and Slash, you're in luck. And even if you haven't, my guest today has plenty to share from his 45-year career as a creative and innovative force in the entertainment industry. Today, I'm joined by David Fishoff, founder of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. He's also executive producer of Rock Camp The Movie, a 2021 documentary about his life and the camp that, since 1997, has provided over 7,000 people from around the globe the opportunity to live their rock star dreams and reconnect with their passion for music alongside the biggest names in the industry. When the COVID-19 pandemic struck, he quickly pivoted from live camps to launching the successful online Rock Camp Masterclass series via Zoom. The son of a Holocaust survivor, David Fishoff has been a pioneering producer in the world of entertainment for more than four decades. And in addition to launching the Rock and Roll Camp, he spent time as a sports agent, music producer, representing Phil Simms and Lou Pinella, among other sporting legends, and working with Ringo Starr, The Monkees, and numerous other well-known musical acts. David, welcome to the B'nai B'rith Podcast. Oh, Dan, thank you so much for having me. And why it's so such an honor to be here is I got excited when when you guys invited me is I started my career booking B'nai B'rith Lodges. I started in the Catskills and I used to get so many comedians and singers from B'nai B'rith all around the United States. I booked every Jew, every synagogue and reform, Orthodox, conservative, Chabad. But B'nai B'rith was a big, big buyer for me. Well, we were a, a, a pretty regular presence in the Catskills. You know, we used to have regional conventions and other kinds of conventions up there. And of course, the Concord, uh, Rose Singers, yeah. Both of them. And um, a magical place. And uh, you may know, before we get started, that uh, they, they just opened or are opening uh, a museum of the Catskills. Uh, I just heard, there. yeah. And uh, that's that's exciting. Well, you've always been the idea man. Uh, and you've uh, been hailed for your unique and your often brilliant concepts. Where did it all begin? Where did you grow up? Tell us a little about your parents and what advice did they give you about the career that you wanted to pursue? So, you know, I, I started my life really in Galveston, Texas, and my father was a cantor there. And, you know, he, he had an Orthodox synagogue in Galveston because um, they came in through the port there. And I was a little kid. And, um, and then, he, then there was a big um, hurricane. So we moved to Brockton, Massachusetts, and then on to Hackensack, New Jersey, where he was there for... Um, 35 years in Hackensack. And I used to always say my father was Orthodox, the synagogue was conservative, and the people were Reformed. So I love all Jews, you know. And, and um, but I started, and then I started in the Catskills and, um, and then booking B'nai B'rith Lodges. And, um, and you know, I, and I just, you know, with evolution, I just kept doing things that I have passion for. And that's the one thing that my dad taught me. And, um, you know, go with your passion. So the minute I got bored, in the Catskills, or Herschel Bernardi was my my first client there. He said, "Get out of the Catskills and and go to the real world." 
And um, and I thought the real world was only the Catskills. So um, I opened up my my mind and and to uh, you know to do new things, and and I'm very much in doing fun and innovative things. Well, you've been involved with uh, some of the most important music makers uh, of the last fifty years. When did it all take off for you? Uh, did your professional career choices uh, stem from your affection for uh, music from the 1960s, as it is in my case, uh, the performers of the 1950s, like Elvis, or maybe both? Uh, when did it really click for you? You know, it, it clicked for me in 84. Um, well, it clicked for me when I started my sports career. Um, I was 22 years old and um, I met Phil Sims, and um, before that, a year before, Lou Pinella. And I remember walking into Lupinella's house and I had taken him to a camp in the Catskills and um, I was wearing my yarmulke, inviting me to come in for lunch. And and um, and uh, I'll never forget, I said, you know, I, I don't eat, I eat kosher. And so, um, but I'm going to sit with you. And and I asked him if he had an agent and he hadn't had an agent. You know, players didn't have agents back then. He'd walk into Steinbrenner's office and say, um, George, I want 300. And George said, I'll give you 200. Okay, we'll shake it 250. And that was it. That's the way they negotiated contracts. Um, Bobby Mercer was the first player to get, make $100,000 uh, besides Babe Ruth and so, uh, and DiMaggio. But they didn't, um, that's the way they didn't have agents back then. So I was really in the early part of career of, of sports and uh, representing these players. Um, and that started to happen. And then I picked up Phil Sims from the Giants and I started representing the whole offensive line because. You know, they, they all worked out together and they said, and, and Phil would say, who's your agent? And he said, I don't have one. Well, call David Fishoff. And, and you know, they were all friends. So that's really when it started clicking me for sports. I started picking up more players. And the entertainment business was really 1984. I got a call from a band calling, um, called the Association. And they asked me sure. if I was interested in representing the Association. I said, the Association of what? I, I never heard of the Association. Never well, my love. That was never the big my hit. love, right? And 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 Windy and Windy. Uh, Cherish. And remember Cherish was the song that I'll never forget. The guy offered me twenty five thousand dollars to buy it from him. Today, I it, song's probably worth like eight zillion dollars. You know, who knew back then what publishing was going to be? So I, I I went from the sports from the Catskills to sports, and then um, my luck really really I, mean, I call it luck, but luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I was doing the oldie shows. I I. Uh, that all these bands started calling me the Turtles and the Grassroots and the Association because I was really putting them together and packaging them in tours. Um, in 1986, uh, I, I came up with the idea to do the Monkees, and that's, that was really life-changing for me. Uh, unbeknownst to me, I'm on the seventh floor of 1775 Broadway. On the eighth floor is this new fledging network called MTV, mm -hmm. who decided to air 24 hours of Monkees TV shows. So I ran upstairs to Bob Pittman, who was running the network, and he's currently the head of iHeartRadio. And I said, Mr. Pittman, I'm David Fishoff, and I'm doing the uh, Monkees this summer in a tour. And he said, sit down, kid. And I said, okay. And he said, I thought you were the sports agent. I said, I am, but, you know, I wanted to do some music. And um, he said to me, I'll make a deal with you. You promote my new fledging network, MTV, and all your ads, and I'll promote the Monkees tour on MTV. And who knew that? I was going to go put tickets on sale and normally sell 3,000 seats. I would sell 25,000 seats in Chicago and 30,000 in Detroit and stadiums. And the monkeys were the biggest thing in 1986. So that, that really, so that really, that really explains um, how there was a second act, if you will, for the monkeys. Um, um, totally. And not, and not, not just, not just as an oldies act, 
but it was it was like a new generation was discovering the monkeys. wasn't Wasn't that really what it was all about? Dan, here's what happened: the uh, little girls would would come home at ten o'clock in the morning, and the mothers would say to them, "Where were you all night, mommy? I was buying monkey tickets." Well, I want to go. They didn't realize that the monkeys was a new band. And the brilliance of the monkey is that every decade the show airs and it gets streamlined. The MTV was the biggest, but they it's such a brilliant show. And it was really the only show my parents would let me watch as a kid growing up. And and and, and I went to the yeshiva and they they would never let me watch anything else. Even wrestling, they wouldn't let me watch. But um it, it transcends every year into I watched it just two nights ago. It was on like a, a, a station here in Los Angeles. It's just such a fun show. They were the original music videos and the and the slapstick humor and still holds up. So, yeah, that was in 1986. No one had brought them back on tour. Um, and, and with the help of MTV, uh, MTV was so powerful. We we ended up selling out stadiums, arenas, stadiums, and it was, it was huge. So you've got sports on the one hand. You've yeah. got music and entertainment on the other. Now, with sports, you're you're an agent for Lupinello or? Or, or Phil Sims, um, and you don't really accompany the player uh, through the entire season. But in entertainment, if there's a tour, you've got to be on the tour. How did that work, being away and being on the road? Okay, so interesting. You're right. You know, in, in the sports world, they don't even want the agents at the, you know, in the locker room uh, of a Yankee stadium. It says no agents allowed. You know, um, they, they don't really let agents around because they, they they don't want the players being distracted. You, you, same thing in the locker rooms. Um, you know, football. So, you know, and so the player doesn't expect you to be there. They expect you to be there after the game or, you know, so, but my players were really, you know, they weren't asking me to be there. They just wanted me to make sure that I negotiate the best deals for them and protect them, which I really love doing because they were really great people. Um, the music world is totally different. You're right. They want you there. They, you know, that when Bob Dylan's looking to the left, he wants to see his manager there. And and Springsteen wants to see his manager there. You know, it, it, what, what, what it really hit me when I met the late Bill Graham, you know, who was a Holocaust survivor, is probably one of the biggest rock and roll promoters in, you know, from California. And I said to, he, he was a little drunk at the bar at the Concord. And I said, Bill, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm the Rolling Stones tour manager. I said, what do you mean you're the Rolling Stones? You're Bill Graham. You're the greatest promoter. I mean, you're not a tour manager. He said, I got to go on the road with the Rolling Stones. Who else is going to tell Mick Jagger to get the F on the bus? And that's when I realized that I had to be there. And when I signed Ringo, he said to me after the second show, he said, um, I, I said, Ringo, I'll, I'll see you. I'm going, I'll see you next week in Chicago. I'm going to go home for the Sabbath. And he said, oh, you told me that uh, you're going to be here with me on the tour. And I said, well, you know, I don't really go on these tours. And he says, well, you know, you can do the Sabbath in Buffalo. And uh, so I landed up calling my wife and I said, I'll see you in eight weeks. I'm going on the road with Ringo Starr. And boy, was that, that was really life changing. Here I am on the road with all these people that were 10, 20 years older than me. And, and it was quite interesting, but you know, you have to be there, you know, when you're in Detroit and you're with, with, with a Beatle, um, your business is in Detroit. So you, I had to do a lot of traveling back then. What was your, one of your favorite events? And we've talked about the thousands that filled stadiums for the monkeys, um, and arenas, um, other, other favorite events that, um, kind of stand out in your career. Well, you know, I produced Dirty Dancing was a huge show for me. I mean, I came up with the idea after seeing the movie to um, produce it as a live tour. And I went to the movie, um, the people who owned the, the film, 
Dirty Dancing. And I said, hey, I want to do a live tour of Dirty Dancing. And um, it, it would be uh, quite interesting if I could, you know, get the original dancers, the people who sang the songs. And they said, David, you know, we, we trust you. We'll, we'll we'll give you the name and, and you know, give us a royalty. And, and I did. And I ran to Radio City Music Hall and I said, hey, I got the Dirty Dancing live tour. How about we do it at Radio City? And the producer, the president says to me, I will give you one show, David. And and um, I said, no, do me a favor. Pay me, take three shows, pay me for two. But one, I want a full page ad in the New York Times announcing the tour. And uh, they said, OK, they agree. Uh, we we I went to a press agent. And I said, what do I do here? I, you know, it's there's a record and there's a movie. And he said, David, you got to stage a rehearsal at Radio City and do a press conference there. And I did. And, you know, b- back then there was no Internet. And uh, so I staged a press conference for Wednesday, put the full page ad in the New York Times the Sunday prior, said tickets are going to go on sale at 12 o'clock on Ticketmaster, but nine o'clock at the box office only to walk into Radio City at 8.30 in the morning because uh, we had a 10 o'clock press conference. And I saw lines 20 blocks deep buying tickets for Dirty Dancing, the live tour. Now, I had no show, Dan. I just came up with a concept. I figured I'll put tickets on sale, see if it sells. And if it sells, I'll create a show. And um, I walk into Radio City and the president says to me, David, we sold out three shows. And I said, what? He says, can we add more? I said, you can add all you want. So he said, they had five, they had room for five more because they had Barbara Streisand the week later and they had another show the week before. And we sold those out in 24 hours. So then I created a show. And Radio City sits, seats thousands of people. Six thousand. We sold a million dollars in tickets back then. And, you know, in eight shows. And then we created a great show and played all around the world. Now, the agent was able to go to every arena in the country and theater and say, hey, Dirty Dancing sold out. Um, you know, eight shows. And that's all they care about. They don't care about the show. And, you know, in the end, Dan, it was so interesting. All people wanted to hear was the music and to see those dancers. And they were screaming. And I had Bill Medley singing, uh, I Have the Time of Your Life, and Eric Carmen doing Hungry Eyes. All they wanted to do is look at those dancers and just imagine the dream of what it was like. And it was incredible. And that, to me, was amazing. And, you know, from that, I, I then came up with the idea to go to Ringo. And I pitched Ringo an idea, and I wrote him a letter. I FedExed it to his lawyer, and six months later, I get a phone call. Uh, Ringo wants to meet you, and went over to England to meet him. And he, I did a whole pitch on him on, on doing the all-star band, and he says, I was thinking the same thing. I said, well, great. Let's do it. And 15 years on the road all around the world with him and was was quite interesting. Fantastic. Now there's another part to your career. So in 1997... You created an amazing initiative, the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. As you said, it's not just a leisure or an amateur pursuit. Uh, attendance at the camp is sure to guarantee a life-changing experience. Now, you've seen firsthand why that's so. Tell us about what inspired the idea behind the Rock Camp and why you think that has changed so many people's lives in the process. So, you know, here I was on tour with Ringo and the All-Star Band, and we had no managers, no agents, no wives. Uh, it was just me and the band. And to see these people, how creative they got with each other and laugh. We laughed the whole time. Now, you know, these were people, leaders of bands. So it was, you know, and Joe Walsh said a great line. He says, you know, we're, we're a democratic band. You know, whatever Ringo says, we do. 
And um, it was just fun to be with all these people. And I kept saying to myself, if I could give this to the fans, if I could give them an experience, they hanging around these incredible rock stars like Levon Helm and, and you know, Joe Walsh and to see the fun. So I wanted to give this to the fan. And that's when I came up with the idea of ring, uh, of idea of ring of rock and roll fantasy camp. Well, what happened was after the fourth show, uh, the first show we did at the Garden State Art Center in New Jersey, um, I was having dinner with the president of Radio City, trying to, you know, to get him to take the show. And because Ringo said, I want to play Radio City and um, I'm having dinner. And all of a sudden, Nils Lofgren um, from Springsteen's band, who's in the band, walks by and says, David, I'm out of here. I said, what do you mean you're out of here? I said, nah, this idea is not going to work. You can't put all these all stars together and expect us not to fight and and get along. And and this is after the fourth show. And, I, you know, I mortgage my house. You know, Dan, as a promoter, you do crazy things, you know, and I mortgage my house and um, to, to, you know, put up the money for this tour. And what happened was that uh, then a second later, I turned to my left and this Clarence Clemens said, now, fish up. I'm out of here, too. This is not going to work. And uh, so I said, well, I better go find Ringo. I, something's going on here and I got a show to start. So I excused myself and the security guard says, you better go in there. I said, what's going on? He said, they're having a fight. Levon Helm and Joe Walsh are fighting over songs. So I said, well, not Ringo. They're his friends. You know, they're not going to listen to me. I couldn't find him. So I ended up having to go in the room. Joe Walsh has a knife in his hand, blood all over him. Levon Helm has a broken glass with blood on his hands and they're fighting. And I walk in there screaming, you guys are a bunch of babies. And they both turned around and they laughed at me and they they pushed me and it was really funny. So they played a, a spoof on me, which you can see in the movie Rock Camp. Um, but I, I almost had a heart attack. But then I realized how much fun they had. And that's when I created the Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp and came up and did my first one in 97. It was an absolute bomb. We had 50 press and 14 campers. And I decided not to do it again. But then I kept getting calls all the time. And about four years later, I decided... Now I'm going to try it. Do one at a time. I did one camp and sold out. And the life changing is unbelievable. Dan, you cannot imagine that every day I get an email from somebody. My life has changed, whether it's the wife telling my husband doesn't have road rage or I've joined a band. I've recorded a band. A guy opened up for Aerosmith. He he showed up to in Moscow. He showed up. to He was at camp. Um, he called Joe Perry's manager and he met a camp. He says, you know, our lead singer is is Liz in Moscow and and you um you guys are working in, in Moscow. Um can we be the opening act? So she says, send me the CD, sends the CD, shows it to Joe, and Joe says, uh, where did I meet this guy? So he met him rocking. He wants to be your opening act. He says, let him be my opening act. Next thing you know, the guy's opening. So the stories and and uh, that that happened from from the camps are really miracles of people for whether it's their health issues, getting better. What what camp does, it reminds these people for the rock star what it was like when they first started. For the camper, his dream is to be a rock star. He started as a uh, he started in high school and college in a band. And then all of a sudden he had to get a regular job like most people. And in his mind, he is really a musician. You know, Joe Perry said it best at, at the last camp. A guy said to him, he said to a guy, what do you do for a living? The guy said, I'm a lawyer. He says, you're a lawyer? Yeah. And then on weekends, I play guitar in my band. And he said to him, he says, you're a liar. He says, you're a guitarist first. You do the legal BS to pay for your guitars. <laughs> you know, uh, my, and my brother, my brother, who's a rabbi, he's a, he's a conservative rabbi in, in, uh, in Florida, in Boynton Beach. 
And he's really a drummer. I mean, he was my inspiration, you know, and my dad told him he can only play in Jewish music. And, and you know, he tells, he says everybody, he taught me all these bands. But my brother says, I would give up the rap in it to be a full-time drummer. Just tell me when and where. Well, let's talk about the, the 2021 documentary on your life and the camp, Rock Camp, the movie. Yeah. Um, was it, was the movie your idea? No, the idea was the idea of Doug Blush, um, who was an Academy Award winner. He did 20 Feet from Stardom. Um, he did another Invictus um, for Netflix, and he had another uh, period, uh, was a, a film he won a recent uh, Oscar for. Um, Doug came to me along with Jeff Rowe. Jeff Rowe was a, an old dear friend of mine who was, was the producer of, um, he ran VH1 Classic, and they said, you got to document this. And I said, I'll do it on one condition. I don't want to be in it. You got to feature the campers, tell their stories, tell the rocker stories. I don't want to be in it. So the first two years, they would, they would, you know, they went through 90 terabytes of film. And then I got a phone call. They both called me up and said, listen, we showed it to Disney. We showed it to this people. You got to be in it, David. And and I said, you know, uh, now for me, you know, what I learned, what I learned, Ringo always said to me, you know, I would go to him with an interview. He said, uh, would you do this interview? He says, I'll give it to this rocker. Give it to that rocker. He always wanted to push everybody. And I felt that, you know, in my own modest way, it's not about me. It's about these people and their stories. So they insisted you got to be in it. So I made three conditions. Number one, I want to wear my yarmulke in it. And number two, I want to say that I'm a modern Orthodox Jew. And number three, the most important for me was to mention my dad being a Holocaust survivor and really my inspiration. And um, my dad, because I remember taking my dad back to and my mom, we went back to, you know, visit Auschwitz and Buchenwald and and the, the um, he's from Bratislava and he didn't want to go back. But I insisted he come back with me. This was before it became popular to go back. This is 30 years ago. And uh, we went back and I wanted that included in the film. So the film has done great. I mean, uh, in, in, in the way that it's really um, you don't have to be a music fan to watch. It. It's anybody who really my belief is who wants to do something in their life and be motivated. These people do it through music but you can really go through a life-changing experience at any age. Um, and that's really the message I wanted to get across. Do you hear from campers when they, when they see the movie? Do they, do they write to you? I hear from campers every day. You know, it really is amazing um, how much. A guy wrote to me yesterday. He said, David, I'm opening for ZZ Top. <laughs> I said, it's crazy the stuff that, you know, these people, they, okay. A guy walks into a, a rehearsal studio in, in, in New York and he says to them, I want to rent rehearsal space because I put a band together and we got a teacher. And the guy says to him, have you ever been in a band before? Do you know what you're doing? He shows up a picture. He says, yeah, here's me and Roger Daltrey last week at the House of Blues. Got to, oh, oh, okay. You know? So, you know, the, these people have just been, they get so inspired. They get, you know, they, they just find the happiness in their life. And if you're a musician and, and that's why I'm, I'm, Dan, I'm so excited more about, I'm doing a comedy fantasy camp with Jay Leno and, Adam Carolla, because comedy is really what I love. I started in the Catskills. So let's go back to to your Jewish faith as a as a stand up Jew. Um, yet you work in a world which is filled with all kinds of, of faiths and all kinds of beliefs, um, all kinds of people from all over the world. Um, has your faith, has Judaism sometimes presented itself? As, a, as an asset to what you do uh, in terms of, of how you see the world? Well, definitely. You know, first of all, I have to tell you, all these rock musicians are spiritual. 
they couldn't write these songs if they weren't such a spiritual person. And, you know, the athletes are, are many of them are Christian. So with the athletes, you know, the, all my clients were very respectful to me. They were, you know, I couldn't make a living on Jewish athletes, you know, Ron Bloomberg. And that's it, you know, back to my time. But um, so the, the athletes are very, you know, they're very well trained and, and very religious. And um, so, again, you don't you don't get that discipline. You know, show business was hard. There's no question, um, you know, and, 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 and you know, I, I ran into some anti-Semitism, even as a sports agent, when I when I would go negotiate a contract in Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, occasionally I, I went into some, you know, negative stuff. But. In the music business, um, you know, I I, I, I I was around these artists when they're really not during their drug years. So, you know, you, you can imagine in the 60s, I met them when they were basically on the 12-step program or they were healthy um, and they're alive today. And the same thing with rock camp. If you do rock and roll fantasy camp, you're someone who wants to give back. You're someone who's um, on a 12-step program or or something similar that uh, you're very spiritual and you just want to get back. So I, you know, there's no question that um, while my, our, our values were different, um, but they were really aligned the same because it's really giving back, you know, dad, dad was a cantor. He, all he wants to do is give back and help people in the community. My brother, Joey's a rabbi. Um, all he tells me is I help this person, that person, my son-in-law, Rabbi Shlomo Einhorn is one of the leading rabbis here in Los Angeles. You know, all he does is, is good. I just don't want to be a rabbi, but I love doing good for people. Do you think that music, and you've been around some of the most important musicians um, of certainly the second half of the 20th century and now on into the 21st century. Do you think that this kind of, of music, uh, which you've been deeply immersed in, is in itself kind of a manifestation of tikkun olam, that music does help to repair the world? It's unbelievable. You know, music is just like, it, it really is incredible. It it brings a lot of peace to people. Uh, you know, it's funny. I went into Yavna Academy yesterday to visit my son-in-law, who's the dean and rabbi. And I walk in, and he introduces me to his executive director. And the guy's listening to metal, heavy metal. He's so excited about Zach Wilde and Metallica. And I looked at him, and he says, yeah, this is what I, I'm from Chicago, and this is the music that really relaxes me. And, you know, everybody has music that, 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 that their go-to music that, you know, brings them peace. And, you know, I couldn't believe he was into metal. Um, you know, me, believe it or not, my go-to music is Jewish music. You know, when I was on the road, um, I would go back to my room and listen to, you know, many of these singers, like whether it was Avram Freed or, or um, Mordechai and David, these, these singers, because it, it reminded me all the time that I was a Jew first. And it would just bring me back to my roots. Um, you know, while everyone thinks I'm a rocker and and things like that, I enjoy the business part of uh, and the people. I love people and I love talented people. So I think that's what my connection is with a lot of these rock stars. It's not it's not the music. I'm not there to tell them, you know, what to do or what songs or how the songs sound. But I'm really there to help them with the business and take their careers the, the next level. But you know, music is definitely is so. It, it, I, I think everybody turns to music, whether they're working out, whether they're um, music is so powerful. And today, um, while many of the artists complain that they're not making any money from the streaming and they're, and they're right, um, it's available everywhere. Tell us a little bit more uh, about the uh, comedy series. 
uh, which will be produced by Fox Entertainment Studios. We talk about music and Jews, even Jews and sports. And now we've got humor and Jews also because we're very much connected to the uh, tradition of um, of American humor, American Jewish humor. Um, when uh, when will this all be rolled out? So um, my, that was my. I went to Fox with the, the comedy idea, and it was about five years ago. And we've been talking about it. They finally they got an amazing writer, um, the gentleman who wrote uh, uh, the Goldbergs. They came up with a great half hour comedy, and it's going to spoof on the camp and me, and in in a, in a good positive way. Um, we're ready to go. Uh, we're just waiting for the strike to end. And um, the minute the strike ends, we're going to hopefully start casting and, and moving it along. Um, I also made another deal with Fox recently to do a reality series. Um, to uh, It's not public yet, but to bring back bands who, who didn't get along and they were about ready to make it. And that's another series I'm working on. And, and then this upcoming um, comedy fantasy camp, which I, you know, I'm excited about because I'm a Catskill guy. You know, uh, my dream is to is there do stand-up comedy? Will I do it? No. <laughs> maybe, maybe, but it's that's hard stuff. There's still time, and I have a feeling you'll be terrific once you once you get out there. You, you'd be great. Um, you can learn more about David Fishoff and the magic of rock and roll fantasy camp at rockcamp.com, and you can stream Rock Camp the movie on Amazon Prime Video. David, thanks so much for being with us. Really, what a what a great career, and there's still plenty more uh, to go. Uh, it's been great speaking with you, and lots of luck in all of the projects going thank forward. You. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you again to my guest, David Fishoff, founder of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp and executive producer of Rock Camp the Movie, and to you for listening to our show. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you did, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave us a rating. For all of our latest content, and if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to Conversations with B'nai B'rith wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, and of course, like us on Facebook. For my guest, David Fishoff, this is your host, Dan Mary Ashen. Until next time, take care, everyone. 